We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. Our culture is always about setting goals, optimizing, and achieving. But what about the complete opposite? Come back into harmony with the natural world, surrender to the natural flow of life, and align yourself with your own essential self. It's one of the core ideas of Chinese philosophy and one of the world's oldest and most venerated texts, which was written two and a half thousand years ago called the Tao Te Ching. There's also Taoism, a religion which teaches how to exist in harmony with the universe. My witness is Gregory Ripley, who is a Taoist priest and a nature forest therapy guide. He's also the author of a new book called The Hundred Remedies of Tao, Spiritual Wisdom for Interesting Times. So, Gregory, give me a picture of your spiritual upbringing and the Gregory before he discovered the Tao. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here, Andrew. Well, you know, actually, my parents, when I was younger and when I was born, actually, my father worked for a company that took him all around the world. And so I was actually born in Montreal. And then we sort of passed through uh, a lot of places, London, Melbourne, Australia, United Arab Emirates, before coming back around to the States. Then I grew up mostly in California and Idaho. My mom's side of the family were all Mormon. So they're related to all the Mormon pioneers who first, you know, headed west and settled Utah and turned it into the Mormon metropolis it is these days. And so I think neither of my parents were particularly religious, although I think my mom, having grown up in that environment, I think it's natural for all of us when we have kids to think, well, you know, we need some sort of structure, some sort of, you know, moral guidance, and this is what we know, so we'll we'll raise the kids in this. And so that's kind of what happened with us. And I have two older brothers, and so they, I suppose, were exposed to it a little bit longer, in the sense my oldest brother, you know, did the whole missionary thing, uh, went on a mission to Belgium, and he is still practicing Mormon. My middle brother, I don't know if he was ever super interested in it. He didn't follow that path and is probably more philosophically inclined in general, more scientifically minded. And I, as the youngest, it's just sort of never had any appeal to me. <laughs> it's like, okay, we go do this thing on Sunday. I'm not really interested in hearing all these stories. And so at a certain age, I think, you know, once my older brothers were kind of gone and out of the house and I was turning out okay, I suppose. And so <laughs> we kind of drifted away from that. Yeah. So raised within that to some extent up until maybe the age of 12 or so. After that, I kind of went through a punk rock stage in my teenage years, was more interested in uh, listening to bands and skateboarding and that kind of thing. And, and really just religion had no appeal to me. 
When I went to college, I initially had to kind of floundered around with no direction. And once I found uh, Eastern philosophy and religion, I, that kind of gave me some direction. And so I went back to school, majored in Asian studies and just sort of dove in from there. So bearing in mind, you've been more or less everywhere in the world beyond the uh, Far East. Why do you think it spoke to you so strongly? Yeah, it's kind of funny because a, a lot of other things could have appealed to me along the way, I suppose. I think it always just sort of intuitively made sense to me. It seemed like, yeah, these are the things I'm experiencing. I think initially I was very much attracted to the sort of psychological side of Buddhism. And then I think Taoism kind of appealed more to my intuitive side like the aesthetics of it, even just, just sort of the feel of it, right? You know, more emphasis on the nature connection, those sorts of things. But I think it was very helpful for me to study Buddhism intensely for several years to get a finer understanding of, of a lot of the psychological aspects of these things. And they're all, they're all present there in Taoism as well. It's just Taoism is much less well-known and, you know, the texts are much less of the total canon is translated as opposed to with Buddhism where, you know, especially in the 60s and 70s, it really came west. And then once the Tibetan diaspora happened, you know, they made a concerted effort to preserve everything and thought, you know, this is going to disappear if we don't get it all translated and spread widely. And that, that hasn't really happened with Taoism. And so, we still have a lot to unpack and a lot to translate, but yeah, it's 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 all there as well. So I read a translation and commentary possibly ten years ago, and I mean I found quite a lot of the ideas really powerful, and it was quite interesting preparing for this. I went back and looked and seen what I had sort of highlighted, and this little section I think will give people a flavour of what it's about, and it might be quite useful for you to say how core this is and give us a, a sense of the rest of what Taoism is about. The sage allows things to happen. He shapes ends as they come. He steps out of the way and allows the Tao to speak for itself. And that is just so completely contradictory to everything I was ever brought up to believe. Is that, first and foremost, is that fairly core sort of kind of material. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I would say it is, but it's also like one side of the coin. When we talk about Wu Wei, which is usually translated as non-action or something like non-contrived action, something like that, one side of that idea is letting things follow their natural course. And so, if you're talking about the world around you and other people and things like that, there is definitely an aspect of Stepping back, letting things follow their course, not interfering, right? Not trying to control. And then when it comes to yourself, there's an aspect of trying to be more in a, what we think of today as like flow state, sort of an idea that as we act in the world and as we go through our lives, we try to follow the natural course of things as much as we can. So for an individual, that would mean, you know, being in touch with your intuitive sense of self that is not not defined by the world, right? That you are in touch with your sort of true self, we might say. And the more that you can be in touch with that 
throughout your life, as you act in the world, the more you're going to be in that flow and following the natural course of, of your life. So you've got a daughter, you've got two daughters. So bringing up children, there's on one level, you sort of want to let them become themselves. But on the other hand, you sort of want to guide them as well. So how do you approach this with a, a Taoist attitude? Yeah, it's a tricky one. You know, I was someone who grew up kind of bristling against authority and stuff. And so when I find the tendency in myself to want to take kind of a more authoritarian approach, I have to kind of pull myself back and say, no, we're, we're not going to try to do things that way. And uh, one of my daughters, especially as a similar personality to where I was as a kid, as far as bristling against that authority as well. And so I think what it boils down to is having not such a tight grasp on things, you know, trying to stay more relaxed. You know, it's almost like the idea of giving an, an animal a larger pasture as opposed to like having them chained up sort of thing, right? Give some wider parameters, you know, give some guidance, give some direction, but hold it loosely so that if things don't go exactly the way you're intending or hoping, that you're not like immediately coming into conflict, trying to not butt heads directly, but guide in a gentler way. And sometimes it means just sort of stepping back and being like, okay, this is not a big deal. There's no reason to pick a fight over this issue. Let things, <laughs> let things follow their course. And, uh, you know, this is not the end of the world. And does your wife follow Taoist thought as well? Or do you have two different approaches? She's a physician, so she's very scientifically minded. And I think Buddhism appeals to her a little bit more for the psychological aspects. I would say she probably has a little bit more clearly defined ideas of the way she'd like things to happen. But yeah, I mean, you know, parenting is such a learning process that we're always... <laughs> <laughs> We're at least learning as we go, making it up as we go along. So what else do I need to understand about the Tao? Or what else do we need to understand about the Tao to get a proper grip on it? So the, the idea of Tao is basically a placeholder for, I mean, you could say the universe or something like that, but it's basically the idea that the all, the universe, you know, God in other terms is beyond beyond language, beyond knowing, beyond everything. It's a great mystery. In Taoism, you know, they labeled it Tao as a way of saying, this is beyond anything we can say about it, but as a placeholder, we'll call it the Tao. And the Tao in other contexts means a way. It's all the laws of nature on the one hand and how the universe functions. And then as far as on a personal level, it's trying to live in accord with that as much as we can. So give me an example of something which you would do which might be different from me because you're living in as much harmony as possible with the universe, whereas, you know, I've got a list of things that need to be done. <laughs> well, I have those two. It's more an orientation, I would say, in a path, a trajectory that we're we're aiming towards. You know, it's the idea of like you know, trying to live with the seasons, trying to live with the cycles of, of day and night, you know, not sleeping all day, staying up all night kind of a thing, not, you know, overdoing um, things. 
you know, in, in modern society, we kind of, I think, had this idea that we could use technology to kind of control nature or somehow be beyond nature or something like that, remove ourselves from nature. And it's just not the case. It's like our, our bodies suffer, our health suffers, everything suffers when we try to remove ourselves too far from those natural cycles. And so it's just keeping in mind these sorts of things and trying to live with that. You know, I, I'm sure in a lot of ways, I probably had an easier time with it before I had kids <laughs> and life just becomes more complicated, right? But yeah, still kind of keeping those ideals in mind. So how did your book, The Hundred Remedies of the Tao, come about? I kind of got the writing bug while I was practicing acupuncture and had kind of written on Chinese medicine a bit and Qigong and some of these related fields and had wanted to write something on Taoism. I came across the text that is the, the core of the book and just at first, you know, I was kind of uh, studying it, kind of writing short commentaries. I guess that was a little before the pandemic hit. And then once the pandemic hit, it kind of got put aside. And then after a while, I kind of returned to it and kind of had a had a better grip on what it would be as a book, like how it would fit together, as opposed to just like, oh, I'm writing these little commentaries on each of these things. Um, and I just thought it was a very approachable text. And I like the whole metaphor of sort of spiritual medicine, spiritual remedies, because that's really what, you know, that's really why people turn to different philosophies and religions is how do I live a better life? I'm trying to figure out life out, how to, how to navigate life, you know, so people turn to different things, but they're basically looking for advice or guidance on living life and, and just figuring it all out. Like, what is this thing all about that we're doing here? Yeah, I just thought it was a very approachable book for that. So my comment would be some of the remedies are obvious, but incredibly difficult to achieve. So here's an example of one. Being serene, calm and without desires is a remedy, which seems like advice for an ancient monk living on the top of a mountain. How can we use it in modern society? Definitely. Simple, but not easy. Yes, um, some of these, we have to make that jump from, okay, this is how it's worded for, you know, medieval monastic. And how would we translate that into our modern daily lives, you know, as everyday people with families and jobs and, and all these things. And so we might say we can't be completely without desires. We can't live a, a strictly regulated life of like, I wake up at exactly this time and I do everything ritualistically and I you know, I'm, I'm meditating all day and, and doing these things, right? But we can clarify for ourselves what are healthy desires for us. What are desires which are natural, like food, sex, intimacy, companionship, all these sorts of things that we all desire to some extent versus things that we obsess over or things that become unhealthy desires that we're chasing after and they're having a negative influence on our life, right? So it's, it's all about finding a healthy balance in all these things. Something about less attachment to things, mm -hmm. not just physical things, but particular outcomes. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So we often have a very particular idea of the way we want something to turn out. And when it doesn't turn out that way, we can be crushed. You know, it can like feel like the end of the world and we can catastrophize and do all that stuff, right? 
But if we put things in a realistic context, we realize, well, no, this isn't the end of the world. And in fact, if we can hold on to things a little looser, we can maybe look at things as they are and, and say, well, what I originally had in mind didn't turn out the way I expected, but you know, perhaps it, in the end it could turn out better than I ever would have imagined, you know? And if we don't allow for that or allow space for that, sometimes we may even prevent a better outcome from happening because we've held on so tightly to a particular idea of things having to be just so, right? And that was a, a thought that you have in the text about this particular remedy is with desire, one can only see limitations. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly profound. So unpack that idea for me. Yeah. So it's part of it is the, the word I translated as limitations. You could also think of as like kind of just the outer appearance of things also is another aspect of that. Yeah. The idea of limitations, it's like, I think on the, the other side of things, so this is getting into the ideas of kind of like being and non-being or form and emptiness and these sorts of ideas. And when we're overly kind of fixated or attached on limitations or the outer appearance of things, we treat everything as being very discrete and very concrete and very fixed. And I think we get kind of stuck in those ideas and don't allow things to change, allow things to be what they are. We kind of impose our ideas on reality. And then if things turn out different, we're either crushed or we like refuse to even believe that what really is, right? Because we're so attached to uh, our ideas about things. And so with limitations, it's very much, there's an idea in Taoism of the uncarved block, which basically just means simplicity. But the idea is that an uncarved piece of stone or wood can take any form still, right? But the more we carve it, the more we give it a discrete form, the more limited it becomes. And we can, you know, we could carve a statue and then we could still recarve it into something smaller, but we've already cut off a lot of possibilities. And so if we can maintain that sort of uncarved simplicity, allowing for infinite possibilities, then we become more adaptable, more adept at dealing with life and changing circumstances. And the more you desire, the more you hoard, and the more you focus on loss. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that always makes me think of a, a dragon on a big pile of gold or something, right? That like, they're just pulling it all towards themselves, and they don't want to let any of it go in it. I mean, it makes me think of, of course, these days, you know, billionaires and stuff where we've just had this crazy exponential growth in wealth for certain individuals, right? And they, they'll fight higher taxes tooth and nail and, and things like that when, when they have more money than they could possibly spend in, you know, several lifetimes. And yet they're like grasping onto it so tightly. It's like, so they're so focused on the loss, right? Even though they have such a surplus. You know, they have enough money for a country, and yet they feel like they need more somehow. There's something missing that they're trying to fill with gold or something, right? And I love that idea of the uncarved block, because I have a lot of clients who are very worried about the future. And I'm sitting there forever thinking, I mean, because I'm often twice the age of my clients, 
I'm now 64. I've, I've had a lot of, you know, a, a lot of the future has unfolded and none of it has been ever anything like I could possibly have expected. So how do we stop ourselves from worrying so much about the future? Because it feels to me like the idea of the Tao is something that could help us with this particular, I'm going to say problem, but it's more an epidemic. <laughs> yeah, it's really about, I mean, there's an aspect to it that's about staying in the present and dealing with reality as it is, you know, in the present moment. That I mean, that's really all we can do anyway. Even if we are thinking about the future or planning for the future, we're doing it in the present. So all of our experience is right here. So yeah, it's it's about staying more open and more flexible to possibility. You know, there are so many aspects I think that it touches on as far as kind of like the ideas of being a lifelong learner and, and all those sorts of things, right? Knowing that, sure, we could just stop at a certain point in our lives and say, this is who I am, this is what I do, you know, every day is the same, and this is just, this is what I'm comfortable with. You know, in theory, this is what I'm comfortable with, but it's really more about this is where I feel sort of safe and secure, even if it's very limited, I'm not really sort of growing anymore in any aspect or whatever. And, and of course, we all see people like this every day or people who, you know, sort of peak early in life and then they're always looking backwards, right? So there's the people who are afraid of the future, always worried about the future. And then there are the people who are always looking backwards to some glory days and never saying, hey, I still have, you know, half my life ahead of me or something. I could be doing all kinds of new things, learning new things, growing in different ways. And so for me, it's always looking at life as instead of worrying about what problems you're going to have, you know, look at what opportunities you're going to have. And like you say, you, for most of us, we have no idea where life is going to go. We assume it's going to go a certain way. And if we limit ourselves in a lot of ways, then we may have a better idea of where things are going, but it'll be in a much more sort of limited sense. Like, sure, we can have kind of self-fulfilling prophecies and <laughs> make things happen a certain way that feels safe or comfortable, but I think we stagnate when we do that and we limit ourselves. I like to think of a lot of these things in different terms, whether it's mentally, spiritually, psychologically, or even physically. It's like with exercise or something, right? That if we just sit all day in a chair and do nothing, we become chair-shaped before too long. You know, our, our bodies, you know, start to stiffen up and take on a particular shape. And then we have to do a lot of work to undo all that, right? Versus if we maintain physical flexibility and physical fitness, at least to some level, right? And just have a variety of movement, things like that. It's good for our health. And so we can think about those in mental or psychological terms as well as as far as, you know, learning new things, staying mentally flexible and mentally adaptable and not sort of stiffening up and, and taking on a particular shape that we just stick with forever. And, you know, life around us, the world, the universe, everything is constantly changing. And so to not try to do that as well or not allow that to happen with ourselves as well is really doing a disservice to ourselves. 
on the one hand, but it's also just, you know, it's just, it's fighting with reality. It's, it's like fighting against life and what the natural impulse of everything is, which is to constantly change and grow until we can't anymore. But for humans, it's a, it's a lifelong process. So I've pulled out some of your remedies, which appeal particularly to a marital therapist. I'll give you one and you can uh, expand on it. Not discussing or judging others is a remedy. <laughs> yeah, that's very important in uh, marital relations, isn't it? Yeah, we have to accept people for who they are, first of all, and we can't judge them according to our own criteria or our own idea of who they should be, right? We have to allow them to be who they are and just be less reactive and less fixated on our, our particular ideas of the way things we think things should be, but approach them from reality. What what are things actually like? What's actually happening? And even if it's different than we might expect, can we accept the reality of what it is, first of all, and then work from there? Because I think the remedy for judging is curiosity. Because mm. judging sort of puts it down to the reason why you're not putting things away is because you're a messy beep, 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 whereas mm -hmm. curiosity sort of says, why? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that invites you to tell me and for me to see a different way of looking at things. Yeah, definitely. It creates space in the situation. Yeah, when we judge people, we immediately put them on the defensive and they feel the need to push back and or be like, well, you know, yeah, maybe they're able to calmly explain, well, I was busy with this or this, or I was distracted with that or, you know, the other thing. And, and so I just forgot it slipped my mind, whatever, versus, oh, you're, you're like a bad person or something because you didn't, you know, pick stuff up or whatever. Yeah. Here's another idea that appealed to me as a marital therapist. Not arguing about right or wrong is a remedy. I can't tell you how much of my life has been devoted to one person saying this is right and the other person saying, no, you're wrong. It's like this. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not like this. It's like that. And, you know, I think I could take like 20 years off my life if I just chopped out all the discussions about what is right or wrong. <laughs> yeah. And we can see that in relationships. And then on a larger scale, you know, it just reminds you of like society in general and our different camps we get into our different teams we're on, you know, whether politically or in whatever uh, aspect of life that we just sort of dig in and like, okay, I've chosen this side. So regardless of what reality is, I'm going to stick with this side of the argument, even if it's completely wrong. <laughs> and all the facts are contrary to what I'm saying. This is just, I'm going to dig my heels in. Yeah, if we stop worrying about blaming and like, are actually focused on resolving issues or, or finding solutions. It's a totally different idea and it's a totally different feel to things, right? Because what I say to people is either you're both right, which often is the case because you're seeing things from two different places, or you're both wrong because actually destroying your relationship over, you know, who is right and who is wrong seems like a terrible thing to do. So, you know, I don't care which way it is, but I've actually reached the point where I ban couples from actually, you know, doing it. I just say, oh, this is a I'm right and you're wrong conversation. And, you know, there's just no point. I've yet, in almost now 40 years, 
I've yet to come across a couple that have ever sorted something out to both of their satisfaction by deciding I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, and it's it's often the case with any kind of argument to where I think it's beneficial to step back and say, is this issue that we're arguing over that important? Is being right on this issue important at all? Or is finding a solution more important? Or is it something that you could just let go and, and not even take issue with and that your life would then proceed more smoothly because you've said, you know what, this is not a big deal. I have no reason to dig in on this. I can just let it go. If they want to be right, great, good for them. And let your life keep moving forward, you know. Now, I'm doing, when it comes to my own personal life, I am getting quite good at spotting when we're about to have an I'm right and you're wrong conversation. (laughs) This next one, I could really do with some help on. Receiving insult without resentment is a remedy. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? Help us out. How do we do that one? Yeah, you know, it really depends on a lot. I mean, it depends on sort of being mindful and aware of your state of mind and where you are in the moment and hopefully being present. But we can all be caught off guard with things like this from time to time, right? And just then react in a knee-jerk fashion that may be like very angry and aggressive and, and what have you. But I have certainly found that like with meditation and you know, mindful type practices, these sorts of things that it gives you a certain amount of space emotionally and mentally. And it gives you a little more of a gap of, of, of like a time lag between, say, the insult and your reaction to it or your response. You know, usually when we're very reactive, it's just this happens and we feel like we didn't even decide to do something. It just happened without our volition. And we almost feel like we're along for the ride or something, right? This is happening and I'm watching it happen. Or, so, you know, maybe we aren't even watching it happen because we don't have the awareness to even watch it happen, but it's happened already. And then we're like, oh my God, like, why did I do that? What, What happened there? But when we have a little more space, I think the first step is we get to where we're aware of stuff like that happening as it's happening. And then maybe we, we weren't able to catch it, uh, and stop it in time, but we're at least aware that it's happening as it's happening. And then we're like, whoa, you know, I didn't mean to go there. And then when we get a little bit more space, we might notice those feelings arising. And then we're able to stop from actually physically reacting or verbally reacting. And then, you know, at a certain point, you have even more space to where you just, it's maybe like a little ripple that you notice. And you're just like, yeah, I could get mad at that. Maybe I used to, would have gotten mad at that, but I don't even need to now. So I think it's a process. And of course, when we are not at our best, when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're, you know, emotionally upset or what have you, all that kind of goes out the window to some extent. And so we have to take care of ourselves, first of all, so that we can be functioning at our best, so that we even give ourselves the opportunity to not react. And I think one of the reasons why we react so much to these insults is we sort of somehow actually believe them. That's the reason mm. why we're actually hooked in. I have a, a saying that I always remember that my mother used to say, and she would say, the fish are rising well today. And so, 
you know, I like to try and think of myself as a little fish. There's an insult that's up on the surface and there's a, a wiggly r- worm that we could come and fight it. And then we get caught on the hook and we're going to get even more upset. But actually, you know, I know I'm not stupid. So if somebody calls me stupid, you know, why am I going to go for that hook? Because it's just wriggling up there and I don't have to go for the bait. But it can be really tempting. It really can. Yeah, that's right. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Gosh, these days online, especially, it can be, it feels like uh, people probably come into these situations more often online these days than anything. I mean, in our real world lives out there, in most places, you know, crime has consistently gone down for years and years and all these sorts of things. But online, it's like we've taken all our aggression and (laughs) put it online, right? And every comment thread to any sort of benign post about anything, you know, you can open yourself up to all kinds of (laughs) nonsense and people trying to get a rise out of you and get you to take the bait. So, yeah, it's best to just read those things and not necessarily insert yourself into them when you can avoid it. Observing oneself during gains and losses is a remedy. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, that's one of the, there's an idea in Chinese philosophy that's in both Buddhism and Taoism in China, where they talk about the eight winds, and these are things that can stir us up, get us agitated. And gain and loss is one of those pairs, right? We have like fame and blame or fame and infamy and gain and loss and suffering and joy and all these sorts of things that can unbalance us, basically. And so, you know, in life, we're going to have gains and losses, whether it's typically we probably think of those in financial terms for most people. But of course, it can be in relationships, it could be dealing with life and death and and these sorts of things. But, you know, we have to realize that that is a part of life and that inevitably, if we gain things, inevitably we will lose them at some point or we may and same with losses if we've you know are saving our retirement or what have you the market's going to go up and down and day to day if you're too fixated on what's happening day to day you're going to go insane (laughs) you're going to be like oh my god i lost all this money today well tomorrow you'll gain it back probably right or over the long term things should work out just fine But when we're too fixated on these things and and let them uh, throw us for a loop, then, yeah, it just makes everything that much harder. So we'll have some more in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to participate in The Meaningful Life, you can do it in all sorts of different ways. You can become a supporter. There'll be details about that at the end of the programme. You can write a letter to us or you can sign up for my newsletter. If you'd like to write a letter to be discussed, if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you'll find a page there and they'll explain to you how to sign up for the newsletter and also how to write in a letter. And this has been done by a woman.
My brother died 18 months ago. It was sudden. He was only 38. Although I'm six years older, we were close as children. He always seemed to know what I was thinking. By a happy coincidence, we both moved to the same big city. We had a different friend circle, but our lives were interwoven. Some days I think the loss is getting bigger. Sometimes I think it's going to swallow me up. I have another brother and a sister and our mother is still alive. However, none of them really wants to talk about him. Even remembering the good times is too much for my mother. She changes the subject or asks to talk about something else, or I will cry. My big sister is angry with me for upsetting our mother, and I suspect her. My surviving brother has not spoken to me since the funeral, and I suspect he's avoiding me. I feel so alone, even though I have a husband and a great circle of friends. Gregory. Yeah. This, of course, is one of the hardest things we deal with in life, I think, for most people. And I think to some extent, you always feel that hole, that missing piece of your life. But I think, you know, when we focus on the relationship we had with that person and the memories we have of that person, it's almost as if they are still there in some sense, right? the effect they've had on you in your life is still there. It will always be with you. It's a tough situation when others in your family and those around you don't want to reminisce with you about that, even the positive things, right? And I know that can be really hard, but we all grieve in our own ways. And it sounds like their way of coping, at least initially, is going to be putting it out of mind and trying to not think about it. And so you may have to have some patience with those other family members. And hopefully, you know, down the road, they will reach a stage where they are happy and comfortable to have those reminiscings and happy memories with you. So, I would say it sounds like they really need to, the listener, it sounds like really needs to talk about it, really wants to talk about it, to express and and deal with that grief. And so, they need to find an outlet that's not those family members that they can do that with, whether it's a therapist, whether it's friends, even if they are friends who didn't know the brother, they may be open to allowing that space, allowing you to process those memories and and that grief, or certainly a therapist could be an outlet for that. And then what I'm thinking is just how profound the loss is, because mm-hmm. somehow, you know, we are prepared to accept that our parents are going to die one day. We sort of know that's going to be the case. But somehow our siblings, we sort of expect them to be along for the whole ride, so to speak. You know, that they're going to be somebody who's going to remember us when we we're very young and who can have seen the whole journey. And that is such a profound loss. And I, I'm sort of, this is going to sound really weird, but I'm sort of wondering if you yourself are actually prepared to accept how profound this loss is, how much it we fight against the idea of people dying at 38. Because, you know, the only way we can make peace with the idea that people are going to die is that they're going to do it when they're terribly old and infirm and whatever. And most people, I don't know how you're brother died, but most people who die at 38 generally tend to die quite quickly and in quite a shocking kind of way. And, you know, even if they do take some time, it's sort of a revolt against how we think life should be. 
And yet, you know, if we follow this just for a moment, this Chinese philosophy, you know, the, the world flows in ways we don't understand and we can't control. And yet we want to control. It's really difficult. And I, I think you sort of almost need to, to look fully at the loss because we're not comfortable with loss. And I think your family is not comfortable with loss. Maybe you're the most comfortable, but nobody is comfortable with loss. And somehow they've given you the comfortable with loss pillow and you're expected to hold it. Whereas I don't think you're very comfortable with it either. Nobody is. Am I making any sense, Gregory? Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, when we when we reach a certain age to where our contemporaries or siblings or friends or acquaintances start to, you know, gradually we start to lose more and more people as we age and and it feels a little bit more natural. But yeah, earlier deaths, earlier losses, especially people younger than us and especially a sibling yeah, it, it seems like it's out of step with the way things should be. But then again, it's we get into those ideas of shoulds. So many times in the past, people used to lose children left and right, you know, in earlier days when pandemics ran rampant all the time and life was just harder, people dying in farming accidents or what have you, anything like that. And even then, of course, it's it's always a loss. It's always hard. But yeah, we we have to kind of just deal with things as they are and remember those people fondly. And again, a part of them or our memories of them will always be with us. In some ways, it's like when someone is just away from you, if they've gone to another country or something like that, they're out of your life, but they're still there. And so in some ways, death is like that, well, depending on our belief systems, of course, they are not present with us in the moment. And yet they are in the sense that that relationship we developed, those memories, how they influenced us, you know, we'll, we'll take all of that with us. I had heard recently on a podcast, a really good piece of advice, which I sort of feel moved to share, which is when you've lost something, the best thing to do is to go and study something, partly because it brings new things into your life and gives you new insights, but I think it helps you to move forward. You're doing something new. You're finding yeah. new people and new things to weave into your life. I love that phrase you use that, you know, our lives were interwoven. And it sounds like, you know, you've lost a strand and you need some new strands to weave in. And it sort of doesn't really matter at this precise moment what you choose. You know, I know somebody who learnt to play the ukulele after their husband left. And it was a sort of silly and joyful and wonderful thing to, to do. And, you know, it wasn't the answer to the meaning of life, but it brought something new into her life and it brought new people. And she kept weaving. And I think the tendency is to stop weaving at times like this. So, you know, a simple piece of advice when you've lost something, go and study something, you know, go into it in detail. It could even be um, Taoism. So um, thank you very much for your letter. I hope that was helpful. So, Gregory, as a witness on The Meaningful Life, I need to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Gosh, well... 
<laughs> I, have a, I have a hard time articulating this meaning, I think. Growth, just growth and change and searching for meaning gives my life meaning in, in one way, right? It's like trying to figure out life gives it meaning in itself. But otherwise, I mean, our relationships give us a lot of meaning, give me meaning personally. And that relationship, you know, whether it's with friends, family, but also just a relationship with the natural world gives my life a lot of meaning and is very helpful in finding my own place in the world. Like I am in the world. I am part of the world. I don't need to find a more specific place necessarily than that. But certainly I find some comfort there. <laughs> and which of your hundreds of remedies has been the most helpful to you? Well, I have a few that I particularly like, and a lot of them are very similar. You know, there's there's certain themes that are returned to uh, several times from slightly different angles. One of the ones I particularly like is about having trust, trust in the Tao, basically like a, a basic trust in life in general, a trust that no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are, you know, the earth is under your feet holding you up. It's, it's got you. Life is not necessarily, you know, I don't like the idea of life conspiring for you as an individual. That can be a little bit <laughs> a egocentric, a little bit, a little bit egocentric. Yes. But life as a whole is always moving towards growth and expansion and expression of diversity and all these things, right? It's, it's always moving in that direction, kind of an evolutionary impulse, right? And so life is always trying to progress in that way. And, and I think within our own lives, if we can kind of harness that idea of always seeking to grow and progress and understand more and just go with that, then it really, really helps sort out a lot of the smaller issues. Trust in life. Well, we're going to continue this conversation more or less along the same sort of lines because we're going to be discussing accepting reality rather than trying to bend it to our will. Now, if we can do this, we're home and dry. So if you'd like to find out more and hear the bonus material, you can uh, subscribe directly via Apple and Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.